0: In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
1: I was in the awkward position of having to come back into a room with people a lot more senior, very senior to me, and having to interrupt them and say, Stop, please listen, I have something you all need to know. This is a very persistent adversary. But I think my big takeaway, though, is that even though we are having this dramatic success on the battlefield, and it it is inarguable, it isn't necessarily going to translate in the near term into a dramatic reduction in the level of threat we experience. I get to raise questions and then stand back and let smart smart people answer them. (laughs) And the question I asked was how does it all end?
0: This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morell, a joint production of TheCypherBrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders who talk candidly about what they've seen and what they think it means for global security. As a former CIA analyst, Morell is uniquely skilled at asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence Matters. Welcome to Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Nick Rasmussen is our nation's top analyst on terrorism. Nick and I worked closely together during my time in government, spoke to each other multiple times a week. We worked together on the bin Laden operation. Nick has worked this problem since 9-11. He's worked it both in the intelligence world and the policy world. He has a deep and sophisticated understanding of the adversary, Nick and I talked about both ISIS and al-Qaeda and the threat they pose, how that threat has evolved, and why it's going to be with us for a very long time. We are very lucky to have with us today a um, a friend, former colleague, Nick Rasmussen, who is the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. He is our nation's most senior terrorism analyst. Uh, He's a career professional, not political. He started his uh, career at the State Department. Nick, I noticed that you did uh, the Middle East peace process and North Korean nuclear negotiations. So you worked on some easy stuff.
1: That's right. I've had the opportunity to work with some amazingly talented senior officials supporting those negotiations earlier in my career. And so now when I I see what's happening on TV or watch what's going on with North Korea it brings back some difficult memories about just how challenging that problem set is.
0: I want to come back to that later in the discussion. But you've been working CT now for 16 years. Was before or after 9-11 did you, did you start at the White House?
1: I had been slated to start at the White House on uh, the Monday after 9-11. And that was simply because I had been hired to do a job uh, working in the office of what was then called transnational threats, working for a guy named Dick Clark, who was my first boss in government at the State Department in 1991. and Dick had asked me to join him at the NSC, National Security Council staff, working on terrorism issues. All of that discussion had taken place pre-9-11. And so when 9-11 happened and I was sitting at home literally waiting to show up to work at the White House in a few days, I knew without even showing up that things had changed forever and that the job I was going into was going to look very, very different than what I had anticipated.
0: You are really unique here, as I think about you, because you've done CT now nonstop for 16 years. You've done it both in the policy world and in the intelligence world, back and forth a number of times. So I think you've got a really unique view into this very, very difficult problem called called terrorism. I really want to start by asking you about a specific moment, and I'm sure you'll remember this moment, May 1st, 2011. The United States of America brings Osama bin Laden to justice. You spent the entire day in the sit room uh, at the White House. Um, I spent half the day at CIA and half the day at the White House in the sit room. But there's an iconic photograph that the White House released to the media, and it's all the the principals and deputies standing in the sit room. The president is standing, and you're briefing him. Um, you can clearly see that Nick is speaking to the president. I think you've got your arms up making a point. Do you remember what that was all about?
1: I do. And and of course, there's a lot of memories from that day that are pretty firmly implanted or imprinted in my brain. But that one I remember particularly vividly because we, the president and all of his senior advisors had been sitting in the aftermath of the report that the bin Laden raid had been successful. We were sitting around discussing what would the next steps be diplomatically with a host of countries around the world that we needed to engage with as this was starting to break into the into the media and into the public domain. And a lot of the planning that had gone into the raid had included serious consideration of how we would talk to many of these countries about what had happened, whether it was successful, whether it was unsuccessful, uh, the steps we had taken to bring bin Laden to justice. And so that photo captures a moment when we were about to break and a number of the principals were about to go and make some of the critical phone calls informing key partners of what of the actions we had taken and the results. Um, and just before the meeting broke, I was called out of the room and some intelligence from one of our intelligence organizations in the government uh, was shared with me to brief to the others in the room that was going to have a pretty significant impact on the way that message was heard uh, by one of the recipients of the phone call. And so I was in the awkward position of having to come back into a room with people a lot more senior, uh, very senior to me, and having to interrupt them and say, stop, please listen, I have something you all need to know, Mm -hmm. which probably explains why my arms were up and I was trying to to command a little bit of attention there. but I knew enough about the information I had been briefed on that this was information that the, uh, the phone callers needed to have before they started dialing their counterparts overseas. Do
0: you remember the, the, the first moment when when you learned about the Abbottabad compound and what your reaction was?
1: I do. It was in the fall of the previous year, 2010, when colleagues from the, the Central Intelligence Agency had come down to the White House to brief senior White House officials on the emerging intelligence picture that was going to ultimately lead us to the bin Laden raid. Now, at that stage, the judgments being offered were very tentative and were very hedged. They were very carefully caveated. This is information that we think is promising, leads us to believe that there's a chance, I think were some of the phrases that were used but it was clear that the, that a lot of care and a lot of precision and a lot of um, analytical rigor had gone into the work leading up to that point and that we were now onto something that if it bore itself out over time would present a unique opportunity for the president. Did you at
0: that moment think this might be it? I didn't have enough
1: information at that moment to know that this was the thread, the lead that was going to ultimately lead to what happened on May 1st. What I did know was that I was being briefed by people who had devoted their entire professional existence uh, over the previous half a dozen years to solving this problem to bringing the best possible uh, intelligence analysis and the best possible intelligence collection to the problem of finding bin laden and delivering justice. So I knew we we had exactly the right people focused on the problem and so if they were if they thought this was sufficiently promising to bring it to the white house's attention and ultimately to the president's attention that told me everything.
0: So you you run you lead um, this thing called the National Counterterrorism Center. Um, Americans know CIA, they know NSA, uh, they know the Pentagon, right? I, I, I'm not sure they have a good understanding of what the National Counterterrorism Center does every day. And it would be great to have, you know, to hear it right from the leader as to what that organization does and how it fits into our national security.
1: Sure, and I'm tremendously fortunate to be able to lead an organization of over a 1,000 people at at NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center. And NCTC was created in the aftermath of 9-11. It grew out of the 9-11 Commission investigation that looked at the systemic failings. There's no other word to use other than failings. The systemic failings that led to the United States being attacked the way it was on 9-11. And so in the aftermath, when we looked and back... Lack, the lack of sharing. The lack of, of those, sharing of information. When was we looked back, agreements. we identified clear shortfalls and failings in the way we did business as a government with respect to terrorism. And one of those, in, those uh, failings and shortcomings was the way in which we handled information. We had operated under a system in which we walled off certain kinds of information from certain other kinds of information and made it difficult, if not impossible, for anybody inside the government to have the full picture of what a terrorism threat might look like to the United States. And so NCTC was created in the aftermath of 9-11 with the specific task of fixing or addressing that problem. It was supposed to be the place where every bit of information available to the U.S. government related to terrorism would be provided so that the full analytical picture could be presented to decision makers. So that means that the most sensitive information that CIA or the National Security Agency or the Defense Intelligence Agency or any of our collecting agencies... The most sensitive information they collect overseas is married up with all of the information available to FBI in the course of its domestic uh, investigations concerning terrorism here in the United States. And again, that doesn't seem so like like uh, like any bit of uh, brain surgery, but it actually reflected a pretty significant change in the way our government was doing business. So the analysis that we provided at NCTC ultimately is supposed to fuse together all of that information that we have available to the government. At the same time, NCTC was also deliberately set up to be non-operational. NCTC is not sending spies into the field. It is not collecting intelligence on, on in foreign lands. We are not kicking down doors. We are not flying drones. What we are is an information hub, and our task is to provide the clearest possible picture of the terrorism threat we face as a country, objectively, without uh, without bias to not only to the Congress uh, but to the executive branch and to the American people.
0: You know, it's interesting um, as you were talking about why NCTC was created, right, to make sure that, that the foreign information came together with the domestic information, right, in a way that that didn't happen prior to nine eleven, CIA. Was created in large part because all of the information that was available overseas related to the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor didn't have a place to come together, right? And that's why CIA was formed. It, it it brought all of that foreign information together in one place, but didn't bring the domestic. And we didn't do that until we created NCTC.
1: And of course, pre-9/11, we didn't necessarily appreciate that we had a domestic threat or a threat to the homeland from overseas terrorists. Uh, in the way that we obviously came to know that we did.
0: So let's talk about that. Right? Let's talk about the threat, Nick, and let's start with ISIS, which I'm sure has undoubtedly consumed a huge amount of your focus, um, your analyst's focus, and certainly the government's focus. And maybe you could start by by giving us a sense of how the fight is going to take away the caliphate. How would you characterize that?
1: I think it is clear and probably Inarguable that we are making dramatic progress in shrinking the size of the caliphate. The, the ISIS senior leadership finds itself under increasing pressure in a smaller physical safe haven, certainly than they were than they experienced a year ago, and that safe haven shrinks all of the time. So, give a sense of
0: the percentage. Can, the, you, can, can you share that with us? We them? are
1: certainly at, at far less than half of the territory that ISIS once controlled in Iraq and Syria is under ISIS control today. They still control important pockets of areas,
0: and in both Iraq and Syria. In both Iraq
1: and Syria, and the effort to eject ISIS leadership from those pockets will will take a while yet. I don't want to put a precise timeline on it, but this is not something that will be wrapped up by the end of the year. And that's something I think we've seen over time as whatever timelines we attach to efforts like retaking Mosul or or ejecting uh, ISIS from their safe haven in Raqqa in eastern Syria, those timelines end up. Extending and taking longer than we thought ISIS is a very persistent adversary But I think my big takeaway though Is that even though we are having this dramatic success On the battlefield and it it is Inarguable It isn't necessarily going To translate in the near term Into a dramatic reduction in the level Of threat we experience from ISIS And that's something that seems like A little bit of cognitive dissonance sometimes You're you're winning on the battlefield and yet We're not necessarily going to reap the benefits Of winning on the battlefield that's because ISIS has, over time, proved to be quite adaptive in how they generate their terrorist activity. They use the full spectrum of, of terrorist uh, techniques and tactics in order to generate terrorist activity. They do traditional al-Qaeda-style plotting and planning where they – look to identify operatives, seed those operatives into places around the world, and create cells that could lead, lead, ultimately carry out terrorist attacks.
0: Is that Paris-Brussels kind of thing?
1: Exactly. But at the same time, they are also quite adept at inspiring individuals who may have no direct or even indirect connection with ISIS leadership, they, inspiring individuals to take action in their own environments, on their own timeline, using whatever tools and capabilities these individuals have, and they do so in a way that prompts these these individuals to take action, but without a command and control structure that will necessarily oversee what the work that they are doing. ISIS has also proven that it will take credit for things even if they had very little, if any, connection to the, to the actual terrorist attack taking place. So if you look back over the last couple of months and you've seen a number of attacks or the first seven, eight months of this year, we've seen a significant number of attacks in Europe. And it's interesting that almost all of the attacks we've seen this year in Europe do not have a direct command and control operational connection to ISIS operating in Iraq and Syria but in each case you have individuals who were perhaps inspired by ISIS to carry out their
0: work and so so, so some weakening of the direct of the directed attacks exactly as they as they and, are under pressure in Iraq and Syria yes
1: we have made it far more difficult for isis operating in their headquarters environment to plan design deploy operatives to to do the kind of traditional terrorist plotting that we fought against uh, with al qaeda for so many years if that were the only aspect of the problem then we could we could probably declare victory in some pretty significant ways but what we have seen as i said is isis finding ways to enable and even inspire individuals in far-flung locations, even if those individuals have never traveled to Iraq or Syria and have not even a tenuous connection to the organization itself. so,
0: So, Nick, my assumption was that as they lost their caliphate, that they would lose their brand to some extent, right? And it would be more difficult for them to inspire. What was wrong with that logic?
1: You're not the only one who has brought that logic to the to the conversation, and it's something I think that has proven a little bit frustrating to us inside the government as we've continued to go after ISIS. The reason ISIS has had the success it's had is that it has developed a compelling narrative that has managed to motivate a much larger pool of people than anything al-Qaeda was ever able to do. In the process of creating that narrative, they've also developed a narrative that seems to deal equally adeptly with both success and failure. When success happens, it is the natural manifestation of 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 a plan that is supposed to lead to the creation of the caliphate. When failure happens, it is explained away as a mere setback on the way to that same ultimate destination in which they are thinking generationally or perhaps in terms of centuries, not decades even. And so even something as as unambiguously unambigu- negative for ISIS as losing Mosul or having Raqqa fall, when, when Raqqa is ultimately taken back by uh, coalition forces in eastern Syria, it will be explained away as being simply the courageous resistance of the Islamic State fighters uh, in the face of overwhelming odds. Uh, and so they've managed to, to craft a narrative that handles success every bit as well as it handles failure. So
0: why are they so good at this? You know, They're clearly better at this than al-Qaeda was, right? Al-Qaeda did some of this. But why are these guys so much better?
1: They are much more adept at using all every available modern tool of communication available to them. They find ways to reach populations in just about every corner of the earth using native language, using compelling imagery, using, I would argue, far less theology and far more adventurism as a potential motivating impulse. Uh, The individuals that we see who are motivated to carry out acts in the name of, of ISIS in many cases could not give you a coherent explanation of Salafi jihadist uh, ideology the way an al-Qaeda scholar could, the way one of our many of our senior al-Qaeda targets could have a decade ago. But what they can tell you is that they are fighting on behalf of Muslims who are oppressed, they are fighting on behalf of the Islamic State, which is a growing, thriving enterprise, and that they want to contribute and be a part of that. That relatively simple message seems to have taken hold in a much wider population than anything al-Qaeda was able to do.
0: So taking all of that, what does the threat look like from the perspective of the United States from ISIS, right? What should what should we what should we be thinking about in terms of, of the threat to ISIS here?
1: And I'll focus. I will answer that by focusing here inside the United States, the homeland, right. because that obviously is the primary concern. The primary threat we face here is not from ISIS deployed operatives, sleeper cells, individuals who were somehow inserted into the United States in order to attack us. The primary threat we face here is from individuals that we would categorize as homegrown violent extremists, individuals who have lived here, perhaps were even born here, but have certainly lived here for a number of years, whose entire process of radicalization in most cases will have taken place here inside the United States. These are, as I said, were not individuals who ISIS identified and sent here for the purpose of carrying out a terrorist attack. These are individuals who fell prey over time to the very ideology I was talking about a minute ago and then began to move down a pathway from simply consuming that ideology to becoming a more radicalized individual. And ultimately, what we, the term of art that we use is mobilizing to violence, taking that ideology and actually deciding, I'm going to act on that by carrying out a terrorist attack. And the individuals that we've looked at who have done that here inside the United States, the number of individuals willing to kind of go through that thought process— it's much larger now than it was in the, uh, than it was during the pre-ISIS period. So if I woke up tomorrow and I, I saw, heard on the radio or saw on television that we had experienced some sort of terrorist attack here in the homeland, if I had yet to get to my office or have any new information, my first assumption, my going-in assumption, would be that it was one of these homegrown violent extremists, possibly even an American citizen, possibly even someone who was born here or who had all of their formative experiences here in the United States.
0: And if that happened, right, and if, if you learned of that, what I, what I hear you saying is you would not be surprised.
1: I would not be surprised. And at the same time, I would be frustrated because chances are if that did happen, it happened because we weren't able to identify that individual in time or in a way that would have allowed law enforcement here in the United States to interrupt that cycle, that process of moving towards violence. And arrest the person and prevent them from carrying out that, that horrible act. The challenge with these homegrown violent extremists is that they operate outside of traditional networks. And, and Michael, as you know from your work at CIA for so many years, we became really, really, really good. We are really, really good at cracking apart terrorist networks. We collect intelligence. We figure out because who's they connected talk to, to each other. They talk to each exactly. other exactly. We figure out who's connected to to whom. They have to communicate. And over time, if given enough time, we can get inside that cycle. And pull that network apart. With these individuals, they may at best share their plans and intentions and even their radicalization process, they may at best share that with only a handful of very close associates, a relative, a girlfriend, a parent, a coach, a teacher. And so it's those individuals who, in a sense, have to become our intelligence collectors here in the homeland. Those are the individuals that what we call, uh, another term of art we use sometimes is to refer to these individuals as potential bystanders. These are the people who might get wind or get an inkling that someone that they know and and love may be headed in this destructive direction.
0: And you want to create a relationship with those communities where they're willing to come forward and tell you that.
1: Exactly. And that's something that we at NCTC, along with the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI, are engaged in. It's a process we're engaged in all around the country every day.
0: Um, One more question. Nick, on ISIS, which is to what extent will the ISIS affiliates around the world in a significant number of countries, as you know, take on the mantle of leadership as as ISIS gets squeezed in Iraq and Syria?
1: Well, again, one of the the, the key pieces of ISIS agility that I referred to earlier is, their, as I said, their ability to adapt their nar- narrative to a negative set of developments in Iraq and Syria. And one of the ways they're doing that is by trying to shine the light on particular areas where ISIS affiliates operating around the world are proving successful. And there are a couple of places where that is happening. ISIS, uh, what we call the ISIS Khorasan Group, operating in South Asia, has proven to be a real challenge uh, in Afghanistan and has carried out a number of attacks. And so you have seen ISIS Khorasan featured much more prominently in in ISIS media efforts than it would have perhaps a year ago. I recently returned from the Philippines, where we have a set of ISIS-affiliated individuals there who are conducting a siege and, and, and maintaining territory, and holding a city, parts of a city in the southern Philippines on the island of Mindanao, creating their own little virtual safe haven uh, on the southern island of Mindanao in the Philippines. ISIS is increasingly trumpeting these efforts as being the, the new successes of the caliphate. The question is, will those problems become, remain local and localized, or will those places become hubs of activity that will ultimately generate the kind of threat that we've seen globally Generated by ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and I don't think we know the answer to that yet.
0: So one of the things, one of the things we saw with Al Qaeda, and then I want to actually switch to Al Qaeda, was was fairly senior people after nine eleven leaving Pakistan and going to different parts of the planet where they became then the leaders of of Al Qaeda in Yemen or Al Qaeda in North Africa um, or even in Southeast Asia. Is, is there anything similar happening with ISIS where, the, where where very senior people are going to different, different parts of the planet and, and taking on a leadership role, or is it yet to see that?
1: We have yet to see that in the same way that we saw it with Al-Qaeda. And it's worth remembering that many of the Al-Qaeda key leaders who are operating in Pakistan and Afghanistan were actually Arabs. And so it certainly made sense for them to return to parts of the, the Arabian Gulf or other parts of the Arab world in which to spread the Al-Qaeda message. Or the senior leadership of ISIS continues to be Iraqi and Syrian nationals, and so while the the foreign fighter component has added a, a definite international flavor to the ISIS cadre, and and yes, even to the leadership levels, we don't. I wouldn't expect to see the same outflow of leaders in the same way. Part of that also is I think we are much better at tracking, disrupting, and I, and preventing that kind of travel than we were at the time of the. Diaspora that you're you're referring to from Afghanistan and Pakistan.
0: Actually, one more question on ISIS and, 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 and what you just said about foreign fighters popped into my mind, which is, which is we were worried for for a long time about um, these thousands and thousands of foreigners who went to Iraq and Syria to fight for ISIS coming home. And I know the analytic view on that has changed a bit. You know, what is that view today, and why why the change?
1: It has changed a little bit because again, when we thought about this three, four years ago, as we were starting to see the the tally mount up of all these hundreds and thousands of individuals going to Iraq and Syria to fight, we thought at some point when the conflict subsided, there would be a reverse flow, an outflow, and that the mass that went in, the remaining mass that was there would then come out, and we'd have to manage that flow. We're not seeing that, because as the battlefield has has shrunk in Iraq and Syria, as I described earlier— we're finding that more of these individuals are staying to fight and potentially die on the battlefield than we anticipated. That doesn't mean we don't have a foreign fighter problem. We definitely do. But it's focused more, I would argue, on quality rather than quantity. Individuals who might try to slip out of Iraq and Syria and make their way into Europe or Asia, Southeast Asia, or other parts of the Middle East. And if these particular individuals come with highly specified, uh, specialized skills or a uniquely full Rolodex of contacts or the ability to tap into a local extremist network in a European country or in a Middle Eastern or an Asian country, then that individual who may not be, there may not be hundreds or thousands of individuals, but I would imagine dozens of such individuals would give us a significant problem to worry
0: about. So al-Qaeda, we've been, as a government and certainly the media, uh, probably much more than the government, has been focused on ISIS. Um, But al-Qaeda is still an organization and it's still out there could you talk about where its capabilities are, what its intentions are, and what threats it poses to the homeland?
1: You know, and I'm glad you asked that because the, the focus of the media and the focus of the government on all things ISIS, though warranted, should not suggest that we aren't at all times focusing on Al Qaeda as job one in the counterterrorism business. That that has been true, and not a day has gone by during my tenure over the last 16 years in government where fighting al-Qaeda has not been a primary priority of the United States government and of NCTC. That continues to be true even as ISIS occupies so much of our time and focus. I say that because though we have had tremendous success at shrinking the core of al-Qaeda resident in Afghanistan and Pakistan and and over time uh, tritting that organization, shrinking it down to a small handful of, of relatively ineffective operatives right now, that may be true in, in in South Asia, but al-Qaeda remains a thriving enterprise in some difficult parts of the world. I would argue in Yemen. I would argue in Syria. I would argue in North Africa. We continue to face a pretty significant problem from an al-Qaeda-affiliated organization. And what we've seen over time is that with the with the inability of al-Qaeda core operating out of Afghanistan and Pakistan, with the inability of that core to manage the organization day in and day out, more autonomy is given to these affiliate organizations to pursue their own path or their own plans for carrying out terrorist attacks. And again, I, I, I wouldn't argue that we are, we are facing the same kind of al-Qaeda threat we faced in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. We've made tremendous progress at shrinking the size and capability of, of core al-Qaeda. But what remains of that organization, particularly its affiliate organizations, is pretty lethal and, and pretty sophisticated. The Syria conflict has there, fed into that problem significantly. Is
0: there intent still to attack us here?
1: It is. They continue to aspire to to attack the homeland. They also, though, continue to aspire, as does ISIS, to use the aviation target set as a way to attack the American homeland as well. You may have noticed earlier this year, you certainly saw in the media a number of reports about different steps that Secretary Kelly, then-Secretary Kelly, the Secretary of Homeland Security, steps that Homeland Security was in, implementing to, to increase the degree of security scrutiny that we place on flights coming from certain parts of the world. That was not an accident. Related to electronics. Exactly. We are dealing with a very determined adversary when it comes to both al-Qaeda and ISIS with respect to aviation threats. And so that's something where it's, it's, it's been in the al-Qaeda playbook before. It's been in the ISIS playbook before. And so... Why are they so focused on aircraft? You know, they view this as... I think there were a couple of reasons. One, it is an iconic target; it brings back, of course, memories of, of 9/11. But also, I think it's a, it reflects a cold, hard calculation that, that a significant way, a significant amount of economic damage can be done to the United States and to the West if we render unusable the aviation sector.
0: And it really is a symbol of American power, right? A a, a, a video of a plane taking off or landing is is you know speaks speaks to American power.
1: And what better way to undermine American power than to shut down travel between you know, all the parts of the world that, that, that engage in daily commerce and da- daily travel with, with the United States? In a sense, it paralyzes the world. And so I think they have realized over time there are other ways. I think one of the things ISIS has been particularly creative and innovative about has, has been finding there are other ways to achieve that same degree of political effect. But for both ISIS and al-Qaeda, aviation remains a preoccupation, and thus it's a preoccupation for us.
0: So you would not be surprised if there was a lone wolf attack inspired in the United States, inspired by ISIS. Is there something similar to say about you wouldn't be surprised if al-Qaeda was able to do X, Y, or Z in the United States? Or is that harder?
1: It's harder, and I, I, I believe we have done more to diminish the capabilities of al-Qaeda with respect to the homeland, to the point where I would be a bit surprised if we found that an attack that took place here in the United States actually had demonstrable, tangible links to al-Qaeda operating overseas. I don't rule it out. You never want to say that we've eliminated right. a problem. But we've made the, the homeland a very hard target.
0: And Nick, I wanted to ask you about one one particular aspect of what was a policy that began under President Bush, continued with President Obama, and now continues with President Trump, which is the use of uh, drones um, against terrorists. And there was a story in the New York Times about the Trump administration's interest in expanding the use of drones. And I'm not going to ask you about that because I know you can't talk about it. But what I do want to ask you is that for some reason, drones have a bad rap. I don't know why. There's a, there, there's a perspective that somehow the use of drones is immoral or leads to more collateral damage or there's a lot of opposition to the use of drones. And I, I'd love your perspective on where do you think that comes from and, more importantly, your views about the efficacy of drones and the efficacy of the policy of taking leaders off the battlefield. Is that, is, is, is that an effective policy or not?
1: You know, it, it, it's funny you, you say that because, it, uh, as you noted in, in my introduction, I've served in multiple administrations, and so I've seen what you know you would call, in quotes, drone policy be referred to over time. And it's something I've never even, re- even really thought of as being drone policy. I've always thought of the set of capabilities we have at our disposal to deal with terrorist threats that are emerging in, in key theaters around the world, the ability to strike terrorist targets remotely without putting U.S. forces on the ground in an effort to, to take and hold territory, for example, I think gives us a tremendous advantage over our terrorist adversaries. And I, it's hard for me to imagine a circumstance in which we would forego having that capability at our, at our disposal. I would also take issue with, with those who would argue that we are taking the easy way out when we choose this, this tool at, uh, over other tools. I think from a counterterrorism professional's perspective, we are looking for the, the, the most effective tool that will allow us to do the best, most surgical job of mitigating and disrupting a terrorist threat before it manifests itself in an attack. In some cases, that means working with a partner overseas who can uh, deploy a, a surrogate force to carry out an attack to disrupt a group of terrorists. In some cases, that means carrying out an airstrike using conventional munitions um, from from airplanes. And in some cases, that means using an armed aerial vehicle. To me, it is one tool in the quiver, and I've never tended to look at it as being somehow either better or worse, more moral or or more immoral than any other tool that we have. With respect to the, the degree of precision and care that goes into those decisions, it's one of the things that I think has been remarkable over time has been just how much precision and care goes into that. This is not a tool of indiscriminate warfare. This is, in most cases, we are applying this tool in ways that are entirely consistent with both the laws of armed conflict, but also with standards that we, we would set in many cases that are even higher than, the,
0: right. than those standards. Right. So where, does, where where do you think all of the the, the claims of, of significant collateral damage come from? Because, as you know, they're just not true. It certainly serves the interest of
1: our terrorist adversaries to have those claims spread. And so I would not want to be in the position of arguing with an eyewitness account when I myself am not an eyewitness. But I have suspected on many occasions that eyewitness accounts aren't, in fact, eyewitness accounts, but instead are uh, the accounts of those who have a particular agenda. And not just terrorist groups, but there are certainly political actors in many of the countries in which we operate who have a strong aversion to our counterterrorism activities and so who would also find it in their interest to push a narrative that runs counter to what we know the facts to be.
0: Last question on on terrorism, Nick. In a sense, dealing with terrorists who already exist, who have already been radicalized, who want to attack us, who have plans to attack us, whoever in the process of attacking us is dealing with the symptoms. And it makes perfect sense for why that's been where our focus has been. If your family's being attacked by gangs, right, the last thing you think about is the socioeconomic conditions that created the gangs in the first place. But but I wanted to ask you a, a question about the underlying causes of extremism. And what, what are those? How do we get our arms around that? Is it something we even can get our arms around? How do you think about that? I'll just say two things in response
1: to that. One is last fall, a little less than a year ago, I asked my Team of analysts at NCT at NCTC to actually convene a conference on the question. I, and I, being the director of NCTC, I get to raise questions and then stand back and let Isn't smart, and let smart people answer them. <laughs> and the question I asked was, "How does it all end?"
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I could stop there, and they knew what to do. They knew what I was asking was: Is there a sunsetting of this particular form of terrorism tied to um, Islamic extremism, Sunni Islamic extremism, that we're seeing? And the answer, and asked them to actually do this in an open setting, not with classified experts or, or in, the, in, the, in the intelligence community, but to bring in the widest possible array of outside thinkers on this question as well, because it's not really a, an intelligence question, it's a question for public policy. And the answer that came back, you know, to the extent there was consensus, was that we shouldn't anticipate in the near term that this will end, that in fact, some form of this toxin, some form of some strain of this pathology is destined to be with us for what is probably the the medium term. And for government, you're really only ever planning for the medium to slightly So, what is So what term. does
0: medium term mean? If, if, if I'm listening to this podcast, what does medium term mean? Is this generational? Is this 10 years, 15 years? Or can I expect my grandchildren still to be struggling with this? I
1: wouldn't say that I would expect your grandchildren to be dealing with this challenge because I would hope the world will uh, have pretty dramatically over the, the time of, uh, that it'll take to, to get to that point. But I would argue for the next 15 to 20 years we are going to be dealing with some form of this particular pathogen uh, that I, that I've described. Now, I also asked, "Well, what does success look like in that in that environment?" And the answer that came back was not eradicating the the ideology, not Destroying every last terrorist or, or or putting in jail every last terrorist we encounter around the world. Success in this world, to me, looks like, and, and as, as a result of this conference, I came to understand, success looks like a localized problem, a, a situation in which individuals are more focused on solving a local problem in a particular part of the world and less interested in creating global impact with their terrorist activity. So yes, you may have extremists operating in Somalia or Yemen, but they will be focused on contributing to a political outcome in Somalia or Yemen, not in attacking the far enemy here in the United States. That, to me, is a definition of success that might actually be attainable. Um, And it doesn't require you to create conditions that say we are going to solve every source of instability, every source of conflict in in, in conflict zones around the world. Because, again, over the 16 years that I've been working on counterterrorism policy, I think we have at times in administrations both Democratic and Republican, we've at times articulated very, very ambitious strategies for dealing with counterterrorism terrorism problems. And they say things like create conditions in country X where the threat will be eliminated over time or create conditions in country Y where the country uh, will turn into a reliable, capable counterterrorism partner. When we know that's probably a a project that is probably on a 10 to 20 to 30 year time horizon not something that's attainable in the near or medium term. So I plead guilty to that. You mentioned that I've I've played in both the intelligence and policy world over the course of my career. I plead guilty to having been part of writing strategies that said we were going to fix certain parts of the world and thereby shrink the terrorism problem. I've grown much more humble and developed a great deal more humility over time about our capacity as one country, as great a country as this is, and as much power and influence as we have, delivering those outcomes in some of the corners of the world where this, this— Is
0: that the one thing you would want you would want Americans to know about terrorism going forward, is that this is going to be with us for a long time?
1: Yes, but I'd want to add to that. The problem has gotten, in many ways, more challenging, more difficult, more diffuse. I'll you know, apply a bunch of different adjectives. But that's only one side of the equation. Our capability, our capacity to deal with the problem, to keep Americans safe, is dramatically higher than it was in the period after 9-11. The array of capabilities and tools we have as a government to fight back, to disrupt terrorists, to protect
0: Americans here at home and around
1: the world is greater than it's ever been. And
0: had we not done that, there would have been more exactly. large attacks I, in the United States. Exactly.
1: And certainly around the world as well. So- I would want Americans to understand that this is this is a dynamic situation the terrorism threat can get worse over time or get more challenging over time but we are getting better we're better at what we do we're more capable than we were as a government a decade ago and I would hope 5 years from now when my successor is sitting here with you or whoever's hosting this podcast that my successor or your successor at the CIA would be able to point to a whole suite of different evolutions in the way we do counterterrorism, that would suggest we're getting better and better all the time.
0: So I want to take you back um, just for a second to North Korea, because I mentioned early on that you were involved with that difficult problem earlier in your career. In fact, you were an assistant to Ambassador Bob Gallucci, who led the first negotiations with the North Koreans on the nuclear program. Um, And I wanted to ask you two questions about that. One is, Bob told me a story once, and I wanted to see if you could confirm or deny this story. Bob told me the first time that the North Korean negotiators came to the United States, and he said there were five or six of them, he said it was the first time that they'd been out of North Korea in their entire careers, and he wanted to to play with their minds a little bit, and he wanted to take them to Pentagon City Mall just to expose them to what American capitalism could deliver. And so he took them to Pentagon City Mall, and they went into the Victoria's Secrets, and they would not come out. And they were in there, and they were in there, and then they would not come out. And he was afraid that they were going to defect right then or there. And then they came out with bags and bags and bags of lingerie to take home to North Korea. Can you confirm or deny that story? I can confirm having been told the same story. Okay, excellent, <laughs> excellent. You went to North Korea.
1: I did. In the aftermath of the what was then called the, the agreed framework right. with North Korea that was uh, – that. Uh, constrained their nuclear program. At that time in 1994, I did go to North Korea. And with the
0: understanding that that was a long time ago, um, and with the understanding that you don't work this problem, what was your sense of the North Koreans that you met and dealt with, um, their worldview, their view of us, how they thought, rationality? What was your sense of them as, as individuals?
1: To the limited degree I came away with any sense, it was one of remarkable insularity and isolation imagine living in a world where most individuals have no access to the internet, where most individuals have only state media on which to rely for their information. It would not be surprising in that environment for an individual to have a very firmly held view about what America is doing, what America is doing to North Korea, if the only source of information you have is what the state is feeding to you. And so I think that's something that all U.S., negotiators have had to kind of keep in mind as they've engaged with their North Korean counterparts over the years. At best, you're dealing with an individual who may have had episodic exposure during business trips outside of his country uh, or temporary assignments uh, in New York or Geneva or other capitals around the world. At best a limited amount of exposure to any information at all that you, would, you or I would classify as normal information flow. And if that was true in 1994, imagine how big the delta is between that and reality today. Right, right. With, uh, with all of the information available to the average citizen today.
0: You've also hit here on one of the major responsibilities of the intelligence community, which is to tell the president of the United States the other guy's perspective. How does Kim Jong-un see the world? How does ISIS see the world? How does Vladimir Putin see the world? Extraordinarily important for the president to know how, how they see us.
1: Exactly, and one of the things I, you remember this is from your time as an analyst, Michael, is we have to avoid the temptation to mirror image our own thinking upon the adversary or the, the subject that we are examining. And that's particularly hard in a case like North Korea where we just simply lack the amount of data that we have on most of the other targets we look at around the world. One of the things we've learned about with ISIS is read their media because they tend to do what they say, they tend to mean what they say, and they tend to tell you in advance what they plan to do. Obviously not in terms of whether a specific target is going to be attacked or, or uh, when and where. Sure. But certainly in terms of their intention to build a caliphate, they told us they were going to do it. They then sought to do it. and so. Bin Laden told us he was going to attack us. Exactly. And so we've learned to take terrorist groups at face value. Uh, We have to certainly try to understand how their capabilities match up with their intentions. But I'll tell you, that's a much harder problem set. I don't envy my colleagues who work the North Korea problem set because the amount of information they have available to them is just so much more limited than what I have.
0: Nick, last question. Um, You mentioned you have 1,000 people who work for you. They come to work every day. They don't expect public accolades. What would you want the listeners of this podcast to know about the people who work for you?
1: I want them to know exactly that that, that, that there's a thousand people who come to work every day with the sole idea in their head being, what do we do today to help keep Americans safe? They know they do that as part of a team. We are a, Counterterrorism is a team sport. NCTC sits inside a counterterrorism community that includes a dozen or more other three- or four-letter organizations that I could rattle off to you, and I'm tremendously proud of the work we do with all of them. NCTC is also an organization made up of individuals from all of those different organizations. We are a blended organization of permanent employees and officers who are loaned to us from other organizations. And what that gives us is a tremendous source of strength. We have some of the best and brightest from all around the government. That's what I'd want the American people to know, that the best and brightest people in their government are working every day to keep them safe. And I guess the last thing I'd add is that we are also open for business in terms of hiring. Um, We've, in the last months, have uh, posted positions and looked to hire people at entry level. And to me, there's nothing more exciting than meeting somebody who has shown up at NCTC for their first day of work, uh, knowing that they are embarking on a career in national security. They're excited, which makes me excited. Uh, And I had the chance just in the last two weeks to meet with our latest crop of five or six young people who've right out of school, have decided that this is the way they want to serve their country. And if you, if you can't get excited and inspired by that, then you should be doing something else. Exactly.
0: Well, I hope I hope that there are people who show up uh, who say that, um, you know, we're here because we, we heard the, the director of NCTC on Intelligence Matters. So I hope that happens. Nick, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk with us. Um, it's, it's been a real honor. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. My conversation with Nick Rasmussen. I'm Michael Morrell. Join me next week for Intelligence Matters. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast